0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So, we are in this big study talking about the order of salvation. And we go all the way back to what God did in eternity past where he chose us, he predestined us. And then at a point in time, he called us effectually to himself. And then he regenerated us, caused us to be born again. We personally repented and believed in Jesus. And then we were justified. And then we were adopted. And then for the past two weeks and even up to today, so three weeks, we're talking about sanctification, And so let's just kind of review a little bit. There are two aspects of sanctification. There's what we call positional. This is when you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, you are permanently in a position, permanently set apart as holy. Because God has regenerated you. He's caused you to be born again. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's your position. You're permanently sanctified or permanently holy. That's why we're called saints in the Bible. When Paul writes to the churches, to the saints at so-and-so, every single Christian is a saint in the sense that we've been set apart as holy. What we've been talking about is more progressive sanctification. Now, progressive means that it's not all at once. It takes time. It's 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 incremental. And so we can't lose our salvation, but we're going to still struggle with sin. And so the Holy Spirit will progressively and continuously make us more holy and rid the pollution of sin in our lives. So we've been talking the past few weeks on how do you grow as a Christian to be more holy and to look more like Jesus. And so 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, if you remember from a few weeks ago, I said I can't teach all of this on one Wednesday night. There's just too much information about growth. And so, what did we look at the past two weeks? Well, we looked at the fact that the Christian life is a struggle, a struggle with sin. You still have sin living in you. God hasn't gotten rid of it. You're going to struggle with sin till the day you die. The second thing we looked at is you've got to kill sin. You've got to put sin to death. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then last week we talked about the role of the Ten Commandments, the role of the law. And we talked about the first use, which is, to, is geared towards non-Christians to make them see their need for Christ. And then Christians, we talked about the third use of the law. It's a guide for living. So, tonight we're going to do three other truths. And so, um, here's truth number one. Sanctification involves a joint partnership between us and the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you this by having us turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be in Philippians. We're going to be in second. Corinthians. Corinthians, and we're going to be in Acts tonight, so just so you know where we're going. So tonight's not so much just in one passage of Scripture, doing a, an expository through one passage, we're looking at three truths and three passages of Scripture that teach those truths. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Do you guys want a handout, or do you need a handout? If you want some, they're, they're over there, you get some. All right. Philippians two twelve through thirteen, let's all read that together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this passage of Scripture. You've got the word obey. You have obeyed. And you've got the term work out your salvation. Now, that may sound a little strange. Work out your salvation. So what is Paul not saying here? Is Paul saying work for your salvation? Is there a difference between working for your salvation and working out? Out your salvation yes there's a big difference because the bible teaches we cannot work for our salvation galatians 2 21 i do not nullify the grace of god for if righteousness were through the law then christ died for no purpose if i could be righteous by obeying the law then jesus didn't have to die on the cross for me he didn't have to live the perfect life i could earn it so paul's not saying work for your salvation do good works in order to be saved you guys know this Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So Paul is not saying work for your salvation. We know that that's not what it it can't mean that. But he says, work out. Now, when I say the word work, What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Effort? Struggle? Paul is calling us to diligently pursue Christ through activity and effort. Now, in some Christian circles, any mention of the word effort or activity, may be frowned upon because they may say, this takes away the need for grace. So let me just put you at ease because we're going to unpack that tonight. And let me say it this way. The Christian life is one of effort to grow, but that effort is empowered by the Holy Spirit in you. Okay, so those two truths are together. So I want to teach you guys a word, two words. These words you cannot find in your Bible. Can't go to a concordance and look up at the back and find these words. These are theological words to describe salvation, and they come from two Greek words, okay? So the first word is monergism. There's a great website that I go to a lot called monergism.com. Or is it .org? I don't know what it is. But it's got tons of Bible studies, tons of sermons, monergism. And so monergism comes from two Greek words. Mono, you know what mono means. What does mono mean? One, okay, ergon is the Greek word for to work. So when we say monergism, what we're saying is there's only one person doing the work. So let me ask you a question. In everything that we've looked up to up to this point, It's been monergistic, okay? Who's been the one working? Okay, who elected us? God. Did we elect ourselves? Who called us? God. Did we call ourselves? Who regenerated us? God. Did we regenerate ourselves? Who justified us? God. Can we justify ourselves? Adoption. Who adopted us? God does. Okay, so everything up to this point, God has done alone. But when it comes to the Christian life, Does God do everything for you in your growth? No. So let me teach you another word. This word is called synergism. Okay, the the prefix S-Y-N means together or more than one. You've heard the word synergy or um, synergy, working together. So synergism means that there are two or more working together. So, in our salvation, i.e., election, predestination, calling, justification, regeneration, adoption, even glorification, that is all monergistic, meaning God alone does the work. Yet, or nevertheless, or however you want to say it, when it comes to our sanctification, that is our progressive growth, In Christ's likeness, our holiness, our maturity, the work is synergistic. Now, how how can I prove that scripturally? Look at your passage of scripture. What does verse 12 tell you to do? You work out your own salvation. Whose responsibility is it is that on? You or me. Okay, so we have a responsibility placed upon us to work out our salvation. And we're going to talk about what that looks like here in a little bit. And that Greek word, to work out, means to use great effort, careful attention. Now, let's just kind of unpack or or, or expand upon what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. If the Christian life is a life of continual struggle, does that mean that there's going to be some work involved in it? Yes. If we're called to kill sin and put sin to death, does that mean there's going to be a little bit of work involved? Effort. Yes. Yes. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Whose responsibility is it to, to put sin to death? You. Who does it for you? You. Who does it in you? The Holy Spirit. So you see how it's a joint partnership? There are some very specific commands in the Bible that are placed upon us to do something. Not our salvation per se, but the working out of our salvation. Okay? So, we also looked at this whole idea that Christian life's a life of struggle. So, Galatians 5, 16-17, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Put to death. You put to death. You're going to be, your flesh is going to be opposed to the Spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there is human activity and effort put forth in growing to be more like Jesus, but it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're just looking at verse 12 by itself right now, okay? You work out your own salvation. And there are tons of passages that talk about how this is a... Battle, this is a responsibility, this, this requires hard work. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's Paul likening the Christian life to here? A runner, a boxer, keeping his body in shape. I'm looking forward to the new Creed movie. Is is it out yet or is it coming out soon? Creed 3? I like the Rocky movies. These are like the continuation of the Rocky I love boxing movies because I'm not that in shape. I love to see the scenes where they get in shape. So like when I go work out at the gym, sometimes I'll put the Rocky IV training montage on. Anybody know what the Rocky IV, like Rocky IV, really good soundtrack. So like the training montage in Rocky IV is one of the best like scenes because Rocky's out there in the Siberian wilderness carrying these logs and then Dolph Lundgren's like in the in the um, nice warm gym with all these machines on him and it's just so when you think about a boxer or an athlete or a runner you're thinking of somebody who's dripping with sweat putting forth a lot of energy to win and Paul says that's what the Christian life looks like now does that sound passive does that sound easy all right. Listen to another way Paul describes it. In Colossians 1:29, "For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me." Okay, that, this is almost just like what he says here in Philippians. I'm I'm toiling, I'm struggling, I'm agonizing, but it's God's power that's working in me. So the Christian life is a tr- is a struggle, it's a trial, it's it's painful, it's it's work, but it's God's power in you. 1 Timothy 4, 7-10. Have nothing to do with the reverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end, we toil and strive because... We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Train yourself for godliness. Now, I'm going to give you what that Greek word is. You'll know what the Greek word is. Gymnatso, so we get the word gymnastics. It means to go to the gym and train. And Paul says... Going to the gym and training your bodies of great value, but train yourself for godliness. Meaning, it requires some training. It requires some effort. And then Paul says at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. The race, the fight, the box, the toil, the struggle, the killing of the sin. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped a verse. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Same, same idea there. Fighting the good fight of faith. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Is the Christian life a marathon? yes that requires endurance, and struggle, and pain, and growth, and effort, and fighting, and toiling, and training. All right, one last passage here, just if I haven't convinced you by now, the Christian life's life of training. Okay. We've seen a lot of passages here, haven't we? Okay, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 3-10. Now, you might want to, um, let's do this. I know it's on your sheet but would you just indulge turn to second peter in your bibles it's a long passage and i think there's like four slides on the screen so let's just turn there because i want you to if you have a physical bible i have a question for you how do you underline in your digital bibles do you i mean it's so weird to me to like i like to write it like physically in my bible and underline and so um, some of you may have digital, I'm not against digital Bibles or phone Bibles or whatever. I just, there's something special about taking your pen and underlining it on the paper and then like seeing your notes. So I would underline 2 Peter 1, 3. And I'm gonna show you the whole context, but this is a this is a great promise. If you ever get discouraged in your Christian walk, if you ever wonder, am I ever gonna make progress? Am I ever going to succeed? Am I ever going to have any victory? Am I ever going to have any progress in the Christian life? Just be reminded of the promise in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3. So I need to get my glasses out here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now let's just stop right there. His power. What power is that? That's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that split the Red Sea. That's the power that created the universe. That power is available to you. And what does it say there? For some things that pertain to life and godliness. What does it say? All things. So you've been given everything you need in Jesus and his power to live the Christian life. So you have everything you need. You have his power. The question is sometimes you forget that. So let's, let's talk about what, Paul, or what Peter says here. So his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you've become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Basically what Peter's saying there is you've been born again, you've become um, a new creation in Christ, you have all the power you need And because that's true, notice what he says there in verse 5. For this very reason. What reason? For this reason, because you've been given this power, because you're a partaker in the divine nature, because you have these promises, what do you do? Make every effort. You see the word there? Effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Because you have power, because you're born again, because you've been saved by Jesus, because you have these great promises, you can pursue with effort these qualities in your life and become a fruitful and effective Christian. And when you don't, it means you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten this power. You're not relying upon the power that is there for you because God has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, Verse 12, let's go back to Philippians. Sorry to make you jump all over the place. So go back to Philippians 2.12. We have one verse, so we're not going to take it out of context. We're just going to deal with it as it is. Paul says there very clearly, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I've just shown you a litany of verses that talk about effort and training, and toil, and struggle. So this is not a let go and let God type, I'm going to just sit back and kind of coast and think that I'm going to grow by osmosis. Here's a great way that, it would be wonderful to grow this way, wouldn't it? Okay, there's two things that would be really awesome. One is you go to bed with the Bible on your head, and you sleep for eight hours, and you wake up, And by osmosis, all that truth just sunk into you, and you're like ready to go. Or you can set your alarm clock to get up. You have to crack open your Bible. You have to sit down and read. The Holy Spirit's not going to read the Bible for you. Now, he's going to give you the strength to do it, but he's not going to do it for you. Okay, so many years ago, Don and I, we, we hiked a 14er, Grace Peak, which is kind of outside Breckenridge, and this was back when we were in our, like, early 40s. So we were, like, in better shape than we are now. And so we started out, and it was pretty nice. And then we get to the top, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm losing my breath. And what was really annoying about that, there was this 20-something that ran up and ran down and ran back up. He, he, he lapped us twice. I'm like, is, is that the same dude that we saw? And he was running. I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. And we're like, oh, we finally get up there, and we're like, barely breathe it and then you oh you like sign your name and the little thing that say that you got to the top of the mountain and, and then you you look out at the grandeur you see that you know the continental divide and you're like oh that's just so awesome but that took a lot of work to get there and I turned it on and said you know what have been really awesome I should have just rented a helicopter and we could have like just dropped in and plopped us down and then we could have enjoyed all of this scenery without the work to get to the top Now, let me ask you a question. Is the Christian life a helicopter drop at the top, or is it the trek up the mountain? It's the trek up the mountain, isn't it? Peaks, valleys, tired, second wind, encouragement. John Bunyan's written a whole book called The Pilgrim's Progress because of this, because it's progress. It takes time. So in verse 12 of Philippians 2 God puts the responsibility squarely on us to grow. Now, if all we had was verse 12, this could lead to despair. This could lead to legalism. Because you would think, okay, if I've got to work out my salvation, it's all up to me. I'm responsible for any success, I'm responsible for growth, I'm responsible for fruit, it must all be up to me because it says right there, you work out your own salvation. Now, is that true that you're to work out your salvation? Yes. But let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 illustrates for us the synergistic work. Okay, in verse 12, we were the ones responsible for working out our salvation, but notice what it says there in verse 13 for how does verse 13 start for or because now when you see a for or a because in a passage of scripture what should that tell you here's the reason why okay here's how or why you should and can work out your salvation paul doesn't just stop it at verse 12 and say okay it's all up to you try it in your flesh do the best you can Run the treadmill and try to figure out. No, notice what he says there in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What word do you see three times in this passage of Scripture in verses 12 and 13? It's a word that shows up three times. What's the word? It starts with a W. Work. Work out your salvation. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good. So there is energy being put forth in the Christian life that you're responsible to do, but it is God who works in you. God is the one working in you. And what is God giving you? It tells us right there. What does it tell us? For it is God who works in you. And what is God doing as he's working in you? Two things, both to will and to work. Now, what's the difference between to will and to work? What's the difference between will and work? One is the desire, the will. He gives us the two things that we desperately need to mature in Christ. He gives us the will to work it out. The desire to. I call it the want to. God gives you the want to. Do you want to grow? Yes. Where does that come from? It comes from God giving you the desire, the will. But then secondly, what else does he give you besides just the will? He he gives you the ability to do it, to carry it out. He gives you the power, which I call the can do. Okay, so here's what God gives you kind of cheesy God gives you the want to and the can do so as a Christian you can say I want to obey and I can obey not because of anything in me but because God's working in me now what's the problem what do we do as Christians what do we sometimes we're like I don't want to obey I just don't want to Anybody ever been there? I don't have the will to obey. Or I don't have the power to obey. I don't want to and I'm not going to do it. Anybody ever been there before? That's that's that battle. Galatians 5.17 Your flesh is saying, I don't want to and I can't. And the Spirit's like yes you can and you will. And there's that battle. So God works in you. And so Here's the bottom line when it comes to this joint partnership. By the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're called to pursue the means God has given us to grow. We are called to put forth effort. We are called to do things that God has called us to do. And we're going to talk about that later on tonight. What are those things that God has called us to do? You know what they are, but any... You put forth effort, you take the initiative, but any fruit, any growth, any success, anything that happens that's positive is because God did it in you and through you and gave you the power to do it. So it's a joint partnership. You have to work it out. God gives you the desire to work it out and the power to work it out, but you still have to work it out. Does that make sense or is that confusing? Jesus says it this way in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, does that mean that apart from Jesus, you can't make a free throw? Or you can't parallel park? Or you can't walk and chew gum with this? What's Jesus saying there? Apart from Him, you can't do anything of spiritual fruitfulness. Who gives life to who? Does the vine give life to the branch or does the branch give life to the vine? Who's the source? The vine. Jesus is the vine. When you rest in Him, when you abide in Him, when you rely upon Him and the power of the Holy Spirit, He will give you the power, the Spirit will give you the power to obey, to grow, to do what God has called you to do. So it's really this intentionality on your part to do what you need to do, but the whole time you're relying on the Holy Spirit. So let's make this very practical. When it comes to spiritual growth and you don't feel like it, what should you do? Holy Spirit, would you please give me the desire to do this? Because I, I, I know I, I need the desire. And you promised to give me the desire. So would you give me the desire? And Holy Spirit, I'm so tired. I don't feel like doing this. I don't even feel like doing this. I know I can't do it in my own strength. Would you please give me the strength? Now, if you ask for the Holy Spirit to give you the desire and you ask for the Holy Spirit to give you the strength, do you think the Holy Spirit's sitting back there saying, nah, I don't really want to? <laughs> no. What's the Holy Spirit saying? I'm the comforter. I'm the counselor, I will empower you, I'll work in you. And here's the thing, guys and gals, sometimes you don't see the growth. You may be cruising along your Christian life, and you're like, I don't see any growth. And you may think God's not working. L- let me give you a newsflash. Just because you don't feel or see immediate results does not mean God is not at work. God may be at work in ways you can't see, and it may be a few years down the road when you look back and you're like, oh my goodness, God grew me. I didn't even know during the time he did. Now, that's not an excuse not to pursue growth, but don't be discouraged to think God's not doing anything when you don't see growth because he's growing you even when you don't notice it. Okay? So the first truth we've seen tonight is there's this joint partnership between you and God. You've got to put forth effort, but it's God who works in you to give you the desire and the power to carry it out. Now, let's go to the second truth tonight. The second truth is this about sanctification. Sanctification involves the Holy Spirit transforming us at different levels of growth. Now, let me ask you some theological questions. When you are justified, are you fully justified? Yes. Does your justification change? No. When you're adopted into God's family, does your adoption change? Are there different levels of sanctification? Yes. Let me ask you in a more personal way. Are there some people that are more mature than you? Are there times in your life where you've grown more than other times? Are there times when you've been maybe lax or dry? Okay, so there are different levels of spiritual growth, and it's different for each person. Not everybody's at the same level of spiritual maturity. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, a lot of the material I'm going to be teaching from here is in chapter 3 of my book. And um, if some of you don't have my book and you want my book, I've ordered, I've ordered them. I got an author discount. So instead of going on Amazon and paying astronomical amount because the publisher pub makes them too high, I've got them at a discounted cost. But this is material, this is my material, this is from my book, but I'm just unpacking it for you tonight. So Second Corinthians three seventeen through 18 Let me just kind of give you the... Um, Paul is basically going back to Exodus. You guys remember Exodus where Moses went up on the mountain and he wanted to see God's glory, and God says, you can't, you can't handle the truth, you can't see my glory. So what does God do? God puts Moses where? And they clap the rock, and then he's able to see God's backside glory. Now what happened when Moses comes down from the mountain? He's radiating, his face is glowing because he's been in the presence of the glory of God. And so what they had to do? They had to put a veil over his face. Okay, so Paul's making a contrast, basically saying, man, as great as that was in the Old Testament with just one man, Moses, who got to see God's glory, there's something even greater for us as Christians. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And it's not just for Moses on the mountain. We can have that same experience of God's glory and God's power through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of where where he's leading us to. So we pick up in verse 17. Is everybody there? 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit." beholding the glory of the Lord. The word for behold there means to look in a mirror. Now what happens when you look in a mirror? Some of you go to great lengths to make sure that you look good, and that you don't walk out the house looking like a freight train hits you. You want to spend time looking good in the mirror. You guys remember in Greek mythology, narcissists? Have you ever heard of a, of a narcissist? Okay, if somebody's narcissistic, you've ever heard that, a person who's a narcissistic? Okay, it comes from Greek mythology, Okay, Narcissus was so enamored with his beauty, his looks, he would stare at his, at his reflection in a pool all day long. He was so in love with himself, he couldn't stop looking at himself. He, he'd spend all day just looking at himself in the reflection pool and so in love with himself. So a narcissist is so in love with themselves that they would spend all day long looking at themselves in the mirror if they could. They're they're, they're looking at themselves in a mirror. Now, what does Paul say? Instead of looking at yourself in the mirror, what's he say there? Beholding the glory of the Lord. You need to spend more time looking at Jesus than yourself. I think it was Robert Marie McShane that said, for every look to yourself, take 10 looks to Jesus. Because you're always going to be tempted to look at yourself. So here's the point that Paul is making. If you want to grow to be more like Jesus, here's the point. It's in a sentence. The more you look at him, the more you look like Him. The more you spend time studying, looking at, worshiping Jesus, the more you will begin to look like Jesus. You will begin to have the mind of Christ. You will begin to have the character of Christ. You will be, as the Bible here says, transformed. Now, what's the opposite of that? If you're not spending time looking at Jesus, spending time with Jesus, praying, reading your Bible, then are you going to look as much like Him? You become what you worship. Whether you know it or not. You become what you worship. And think about that. What do you want to become? Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So, here's what happens when you look at Jesus. Now, here, let me just stop. Okay. You're, maybe you're confused. Like, what does it mean to look at Jesus? Does that mean like I stare up into heaven to see if I can find him? What does it mean to look at Jesus? It's, it's a metaphorical, symbolic way of saying, fix all of your attention on Christ in the scriptures. Where do you see Jesus? In the Bible. So the more you spend time reading your Bible and studying your Bible, the more you're seeing the glories of Christ. And as you do that, what does the Holy Spirit do? We are all growing at different rates, but we're growing nonetheless to be conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Because what does this passage of Scripture say there? In verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. The same image of what? What, are we being tra- what, is, what does Paul mean when he says we're being transformed into the same image? Our image? No. The glory of the Lord. We're being transformed to look like Jesus. Okay. We are being transformed. Now, I'm going to teach you a little bit of grammar. The English translations give it to us in the Greek grammar. Being transformed. Does that mean that you're doing the transformation or is the transformation happening to you? It's happening to you. That word transformation is the word metamorpho. Anybody ever heard of a metamorphosis? That's where we get the word metamorphosis. And it's in the passive voice. Which means we're not the ones doing the transforming work. We're being transformed or worked upon by the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed. Now, being transformed, is that a one-time thing or is that an ongoing thing? It's ongoing. And the Greek grammar tells us that because it's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing continuous thing. So, It's not just this, hey, I looked at Jesus once and I became more like him. It's a process. It's like this. The more you continually spend time looking at Jesus, the more the Holy Spirit's going to continually transform you to look like Jesus. If you don't spend time looking at Jesus, you're not going to be transformed to look like Jesus. Now, eventually, if you're a Christian, you will on that final day but as far as your growth in godliness and holiness it's not going to happen as fast or as fruitful if you're not looking to Jesus so when you look to Jesus the Holy Spirit transforms you and this was God's original plan for you from the beginning why were you predestined? Romans eight twenty nine, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be what? to be conformed to the image of his son, so in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. John Owen, one of my favorite Puritans, in his book, The Glory of Christ, which is a whole book on just who Jesus is, says, one of the greatest privileges and advancement of believers, both in this world and to eternity, consists in their beholding the glory of Christ. Basically what he's saying is the greatest thing you can do The greatest privilege you can have right now here on earth and when you get to heaven is to see Jesus in all of his glory. Now, until we get to heaven, where do we see Jesus in all of his glory? We don't see him face to face yet. We see him in the scriptures. And John Owen goes on to say in that book, now theologically this can't happen, but he says something to this effect. I want to know Jesus so much on earth that when I get to heaven, he's not a stranger. Now, obviously, Jesus is not going to be a stranger when you get to heaven. It's he's, he's, he's a turn of phrase. It's, it's a provocative way of saying, I want to make it my ambition here on earth to spend as much time as I can looking at Christ in all of his glory. And to the extent that I do that, the Holy Spirit's transforming me to look more like Jesus. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you want to look like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? I hope every Christian would say Yes. It's a process. It's slow. But God is doing that work in you. He's the one transforming you. And again, how do you look to Jesus? Well, you abide in Him as the vine. We looked at that earlier. Ephesians 4 23 through 24. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Being renewed in your mind. You must constantly be having your mind renewed to the glories of Christ. And then one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 12, too, you guys know this. Looking to Jesus, or keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So truth number one tonight is it's a joint partnership between you and the Holy Spirit. You have to put forth effort, but the Holy Spirit's going to work in you to give you the will and the desire to do it. So at the end of the day, if there's any fruit, if there's any growth, if there's any success, it's the Lord working in you. Secondly, it's different degrees. You're going to grow at different rates. Not everybody's going to be at the same rate of growth, but God is transforming you. The Spirit's transforming you. He's making you more like Jesus, and that comes in looking at Jesus. Now, here's the third question that you should be asking. Okay, if I'm supposed to look at Jesus, and I'm supposed to behold the glory of the Lord, and I'm supposed to work out my salvation, okay, what does that look like practically? What am I supposed to do? I think you guys know the answer, but here's truth number three. And we're going to spend tonight on the first part of it, and then again next week we're going to have to keep... I don't want to give you too much information on one night. It's too much overkill. So here's truth number three. God has given us means of grace to help us in our sanctification. The ordinary means of grace. You've heard me talk about this over the years. So the question becomes, okay, how do we grow? What has God given us to help in this process of sanctification? And we don't have to guess. Last week, I talked about the third use of the law. He's given us commands. Any command in the Bible, we are called to obey those. So if you obey his commands, you're growing in grace. But I want to show you the ordinary means of grace that God has given for you to grow. Now, when I say means of grace... These aren't things that God saves you with. These are things God sustains you with by His grace after you're already saved. So in your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. And we see the early church in action in these ordinary means of grace that were practiced, that God gave for the growing of believers in the church. Now, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Pentecost. Peter gets up, preaches a Christ-centered sermon, calls them to repent. They're cut to the heart. They believe in Jesus. And let's pick up in verse 41. So everybody in Acts chapter 2, verse 41? Okay. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so there's an, an immediate baptized group of believers, 3,000 of them. A church. It would be like a megachurch by today's standards, three 3,000 of them. And what do they do? Okay, let's see what they did. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, we see four overarching practices that God has given as ordinary means of grace to help you in your growth. Number one is Bible intake or scripture saturation. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Number two, prayer. Number three, fellowship with other believers. And number four, the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread. And all of these take place normally in the gathered assembly of the church. So what does the term means of grace describe? These are practices that God uses as ways to strengthen you, feed you, provide for you, and grow you. Now, the ordinary means of grace have been divided into two categories. So tonight we're going to talk about the first The first are the outward or the public means of grace. These are things that happen when you gather on a Sunday morning in worship. So these are the public outward means of grace that happen when you're with other believers so that's what we're talking about tonight the second category of what we call the private means of grace the private means of grace have historically been called things like your daily quiet time or scripture memory or your personal devotion or your personal prayer time you alone with God you need both So tonight, for the remainder of our time, we're going to talk about what what does God do when you gather together as a church corporately for worship? How does God grow you and sustain you? And why is it important for you to work out your salvation and for you to grow by being part of the ordinary means of grace, the public means? So question 93 of the Baptist Catechism says this. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. What are the outward means? Okay, so that's the catechism question. So, What's God given us as an outward way to give us his benefits, to give us grace, to help us in our growth? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation so we just saw those in acts chapter 4 did we not so i'm going to look at these means of grace tonight and help you okay so tonight it's like what advantage is it for you to be involved in worship a part of a church family okay so before you go home and have a quiet time which is important Actually, the Bible talks more about what God does when we're gathered together for your growth. Now, you need both. So next week, we're going to talk about the private stuff. But tonight, we're talking about the public stuff. So let's let's look at these. First of all, I think there's five of them. First of all, you grow by sitting under faithful preaching and teaching. Now, in that passage in Acts, verse 42, what's the first thing on the list? What do they devote themselves to? What's the very first thing out of the chute? The apostles' teaching. They were devoted. It means they had a passionate pursuit. They were eager to listen. They were committed to preaching and teaching. Why is it so important for you to come and sit under sound, faithful, biblical preaching? Because God says that's the primary way he grows you. You're not going to grow by hearing me tell funny stories about my life. You're not going to grow by me giving a political speech. You're not going to grow by me giving a 10-minute sermonette for Christianettes. You're not going to get, you're not going to grow by anything else but God's Word faithfully explained and preached. So what does Paul tell us in 2 Timothy? He tells us about his Word. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, I'm, I'm not going to skip over that. Preach the word. What does it not say? Preach the pastor's opinions. Preach the current events. Preach what's popular. No, what are we to preach? The word. And if you go back in that, and go back earlier, what is that? It's the, it's the God-breathed Scripture. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience to teaching. For time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The primary way you grow to be more like Jesus is to sit under faithful, biblical preaching, week in, week out, not having your ears tickled to what you want to hear, but hearing the God-breathed truth so that you will not be tossed to and fro on the winds of every wave of doctrine and be led astray. So question, the next question in the catechism, which is interesting, question 94, how is the word made effectual to salvation? Answered. The Spirit of God makes the reading, that's when you personally read it, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and salvation. So, how are you built up in your faith? Through hearing the Word preached and taught. How did the church grow in the book of Acts? Well, Acts chapter six, verse seven. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God. Acts twelve, twenty-four. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts nineteen twenty. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What grew? What, what, what was the early church focused on? The Word of God. How do you grow? How do you work out your salvation? How do you look more like Jesus? You are saturated with the scriptures and the outward or public means is that you sit under preaching and teaching like you are tonight and like you do on Sunday mornings to be able to be fed those truths so that you can be strengthened. So let me ask you a trivia question, and I'll give you the answer, but you may disagree with me. If you had to choose between sitting at home and doing your personal quiet time and coming to church to hear preaching, what, what, what does the Bible say is probably more important? The first or the second? The second. Why? Why? Did you ever think that maybe you at home with your Bible reading it may not know exactly what you're, may come up with something that's not actually accurate and there's nobody to check and balance what you're doing? Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do your quiet time, but what I'm saying is when you come to a Sunday morning, hopefully I've spent the time and energy to be able to feed you a meal that you know is going to be from the word of God and you're also with your brothers and sisters where you can be encouraged under the word in a corporate gathering. God does something special. Not that he can't do that in your personal quiet time but there's something powerful about being together under the preaching of the word in a gathered worship service. So you need both but if you had to choose between one or the other always choose the corporate gathering because you could possibly be wrong by yourself you could come up with some weird things. Okay, so this is another thing that's important too. It's kind of tied to preaching and teaching. and You grow by attending God-centered worship every Sunday. Notice what happened in verse 43. What does it say? Awe, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then verse 46, day by day attending the temple together. There was this awe and majesty at the glory of God when they gathered together. And so when you gather together for worship, when you're together in this room with other believers and the praise team has led us in song and you've heard the scripture preached and you've heard the scripture read and you've heard the prayers and you've been together... The whole goal is for you to experience the power and glory and awe of God. And that's how we grow. Sometimes I think we can focus so much on what I got out of a worship service that we're asking the wrong question. You leave the worship service. Well, I didn't like that song the praise team did. Nobody talked to me this morning. It was too hot in the sanctuary. Pastor Sean went too long. The chairs were uncomfortable. I didn't get anything out of it. Okay. There may be some valid points there, but you're asking the wrong question. Have you ever thought when you come to a worship service, the question to ask is, was God pleased with my worship today? It's not what I got out of it. It's was God pleased with what happened here today? did i give god my worship so you grow by being in a worship service where the focus is on god his glory and his word now in verse 46 when paul said or when luke says they were attending they were attending the temple courts it's the same word for earlier devoting themselves so do you see the passion here? They were devoting themselves to this. They were attending. This was something that was intentional. This was something that was, they, they couldn't get enough of. They had to be together. They had to sit under the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to it. They attended. They didn't want to miss. They earnestly wanted to be together for worship and preaching. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together. Encourage one another. And then look at verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. So when you are part of a joyous, God-centered worship service where the Word of God is faithfully preached and you're with your brothers and sisters in Christ, there's nothing more important than you can do that week for your spiritual growth than to be a part of that. That's where God's going to grow you. Now you do, like we'll talk next week, you do need to have the personal, private, quiet times and personal devotions, but the, the gathered worship is one of the primary ways God grows you. Okay? Now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, I'm going a little bit out of order how it is there. But prayer, they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, often when we think of prayer, there's the public prayer and there's the private prayer. Again, next week we're going to talk about private prayer. Third, you grow by being in a worship service that focuses on prayer. They met for corporate prayer in the temple and probably also met for prayer in their homes. But they devoted themselves to prayer. It was their passion. Um, Some churches don't really focus on prayer. They may have an opening prayer that opens the service. They may have a closing prayer. But there's not a lot of focus on corporate praying together. We had to do a lot of praying in a man. I know Sunday we prayed a lot. So let's just look back. I know Sunday was a few days ago. You don't remember all that time ago. So our deacon opened the service with prayer. And then we had a missionary come up and give a testimony. And I felt spontaneously we needed to pray for him right there. So I prayed for him. And then Mickey, I think it was, or was it you, Glenn who did our no, it was Mickey. Mickey came up and did the prayer of confession. And then right before I got up to preach, I did the pastoral prayer. And then at the end of my service, I did a prayer. So we prayed a lot. Now, sometimes prayer is an opportunity for people to sleep. It's like, oh good, he's he's done talking. I can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can sleep, I can rest my eyes. But when we pray in a worship service, even though you're not voicing the prayer. You're agreeing with the prayer in the sense that you're, you're praying alongside what's being prayed. Does that make sense? So even though you may not be actually the one praying, God is growing you by being part of a worship service where others are praying because it's, it's bringing to mind things you should be praying for and it's getting you in a mind frame of, of being in a church that's saturated in prayer. And then on Sunday nights, we have prayer meeting where we meet together to in the Sunday with prayer. So even though when we often think of prayer as a means of grace, yes, there's the private quiet time where you personally pray and we'll talk about that next week, but there's also a benefit to you being in a worship service where you're hearing other people voice their prayers cuz you're being led in prayer, you can agree in prayer and it may be bringing up things you never would have prayed for on your own that you're thinking about and being made aware of. So God will grow you even through listening to other people pray even though you may not be the one voicing the prayer. Does that that make sense? All right. Number four. You grow by being united in loving fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. The word for fellowship is koinonia, which really comes from the root word for common, having things in common. Now, if you read this passage of Scripture, look at all the things that are going on here. Verse 44, all who believe were together. They were together. They weren't separate. They were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to any had need. So they were meeting needs. This is not compulsory. It's not communism where they're like made to sell their possessions. They were doing this generously. They were attending the temple together, notice the word together, they were breaking bread in their homes. So they were meeting needs, they were being together, they were meeting together for worship, they were meeting in each other's homes, there was just this, this generosity. Verse 46, they had generous hearts. So fellowship is more than just, hey, we're going to have a potluck in the fellowship hall. Y'all come and eat some food. Now, fellowship can happen in the fellowship hall. But you grow, let let me just put it very simply, you grow by other people helping you grow. You don't grow in isolation. I would venture to guess that if if I were to ask you privately, not to raise your hand, but I'd ask each of you privately, The times that you were the most dry and the and the least obedient and the most stagnant in your Christian growth were the times that you were not connected to a church family and did not have others around you encouraging you. Probably be most people's story. The times you grew the most is when you had other people walking alongside you and encouraging you, and you were part of a church family where others were holding you accountable and and encouraging you and walking alongside you. So you grow by being in fellowship with others who can pray for you and love you and serve you and you can serve them and love them and pray for them and you can be interconnected in life. So one of the means that God has given you to grow is other people. You need other believers. You can't do this yourself. I can't do this myself. Um, I, I need other believers in my life. We can't walk the Christian life, lone ranger, isolationist. We need each other. So, number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You've got to sit under preaching and teaching in the gathered worship service. Number two, God-centered worship, where the focus is on the Lord. He grows you by being part of worship. Then prayer, you're part of a worship service where prayer is central. And then you're part of a a gathering where there's fellowship, where you can be encouraged, where you can have others walk alongside you. But then it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. That has historically been called the Lord's Supper. So, the fifth way that God grows you, maybe you never thought about this before, is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we picture the spiritual nourishment that Christ gives to our souls. Now, some Baptist churches, not ours, but some Baptist churches, only see the Lord's Supper as merely a memorial or a remembrance. It's totally symbolic. You remember what Jesus did in the past, and all you're doing is looking back to what he did. Yes, we do this in remembrance of Christ. But our understanding here of the Lord's Supper is it's more than just looking back to what Jesus did. We also believe that there's something spiritual that happens in the actual Lord's Supper not anything magical with the elements where they turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. That's, not, that's Roman Catholicism. But what we believe is that somehow in the Lord's Supper, Jesus who is in heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit is ministering to our souls spiritually in the Lord's Supper. So it's more than just a mere, hey, we're taking a wafer and we're, and we're taking a drink and we're remembering what Jesus did. There's something spiritual going on that our souls are being fed by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Now, now how do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to show you why the Lord's Supper is more than just a remembrance, but that it is there's there's a real spiritual aspect. It's called the real presence of Christ in the meal. The real presence. Christ is really here with us. Now, he's not physically in the elements, but he's spiritually here with us through the Spirit, doing something special, spiritual in the Lord's Supper. So, everybody there, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. Again, we're talking about how does God grow you? What's the, what's the means of grace that God uses to grow you? Well, there's two ordinances. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism you do once. Lord's Supper you do ongoing. So Lord's Supper is the ongoing way God uses to grow your faith. So, here we go. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation... In the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now verse 16 is kind of the vertical aspect of the Lord's Supper. We are... Participating in the body and blood of Christ. The key word there is participation. Now, it's actually the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. I think the ESV and the NIV translated participation. The New American Standard has sharing. But do you know why we get the word, do you know why we call it communion? But I know why we call it, when we call it Lord's Supper, but why do we also call it communion? Because that's how the King James Version translates that word communion. So, this word participation or fellowship or communion means more than just we're being united together to take the Lord's Supper. It means that we are participating somehow with Jesus Himself. It's a present tense word. (coughs) And since the verb is in the present tense, It describes the real presence of Christ in the Supper. Now, let's not get confused here because we're not Roman Catholic. Where is Jesus right now? He's, like I preached on Sunday, He's the exalted Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, seated in a body, His resurrected body. Crucified, risen, glorified body. Who has he sent into our hearts? The Holy Spirit. Now, somehow, spiritually, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are not only remembering what Jesus did in the past, but we're experiencing his grace to us now. It's not a saving grace to where when you take the elements, you're getting saved because you somehow lost grace and you need more grace. It is a nourishing grace it's a sustaining grace let me ask you a very simple question why do we take the lord's supper as something that goes into our mouths Have you ever thought about that why didn't jesus say hey draw a picture do this in remembrance of me and draw a picture do this in remembrance of me and sing a song do this in remembrance of me and paint a sculpture he gives them a meal. Okay, so it's something we see with our eyes, and it's something we take into our bodies. Now, if you take bread and wine into your body, what is that a symbol of? It's nourishing you. Now again, the elements don't magically give you mojo or whatever. It's There's something spiritually symbolic about the Lord ministering to our souls. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, not only do we remember, it is a remembrance, not only do we remember what He did in the past, but in the present, in the moment, we at that moment receive sustaining grace from the Holy Spirit who nourishes our souls with thankfulness and strength and peace because of Christ's finished work. Here's the difference in how I've approached the Lord's Supper over the years. When I was younger, growing up in Baptist churches, I was afraid of the Lord's Supper. You know why I was afraid of it? Because I wasn't sure I was holy enough to take it. And it was like, am I holy enough to take this? Now, should you examine yourselves? Are there reasons why you shouldn't take There's There are legitimate reasons why you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. And I'm not downplaying that. But if you are a Christian who's confessed your sins, you should not approach the Lord's Supper as something that you need to be worthy to take. Or you have to be good enough to to, to do. And I was always nervous about like am I now it's to me it's like, okay, I've got that totally wrong. It's not me serving the Lord and how good I am. It's Him serving me and showing me how much He loves me. And in that Lord's Supper, I'm receiving His grace. I'm thinking about what he's done for me and that gives me strength. It's not me trying to prove my worth to him, it's me receiving strength from him. Because Jesus said in John 6:65, 6, I'm sorry, 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's the bread of life. He's the source of spiritual sustenance. So, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is physically in heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can experience the fullness of Christ, the Lord's Supper pictures the spiritual life and nourishment we have in Christ. So when you take those elements into your body, it's picturing how Jesus sustains your soul, how he gives you strength, how he strengthens you that Sunday to go back into the world to to face all the things that are going to happen to you. Okay, you would have no problem after a sermon that I preached to say, wow, man, I I was really fed this morning by the word. Anybody have a problem saying I was fed by the word? Okay, That's something that goes into your ears. Have you ever said, you know what, I was really fed today by the Lord's Supper? It makes more sense because it goes into your mouth. So you're fed by both the sermon and the supper, word and sacrament, word and supper. They're both meant to sustain you, to strengthen you, to grow you. Not for you to prove how worthy you are, but as God's way to grow you spiritually. Psalm 34, 8 oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I love this quote from John Calvin about the Lord's Supper. He says this This is from his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, Christ is the only food for our soul. And therefore, our Heavenly Father invites us to Him that refreshed by communion with Christ, we may experience new strength and grace until we reach heaven. So here's the point. Do you need renewed strength and grace until you reach heaven? Yes. How does God do that? Once a month in our church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So, you need to sit under sound preaching and teaching to grow you to be more like Christ. You need to be in a worship service that's God-centered to grow you to be more like Christ. You need to be in a worship service that's, that's filled with prayer to grow you in Christ. You need the fellowship of other believers to grow you in Christ. And in the Lord's Supper is a means God's given to you to grow in Christ. So as we review tonight, the big three ticket items that we looked at tonight, let's, let's review what we've been taught. Number one, Sanctification involves a joint partnership between you and the Spirit. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you. So he's going to work in you to give you the will and the power to do it. And then number two... The more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. So the Holy Spirit's going to transform you at different levels of growth. You need to look at Jesus. Okay, how does that happen? How do you work out your salvation? How do you look at Jesus? Well, God has given us the means of grace to help in our sanctification. And tonight, we looked at the public or the outward ordinary means of grace that happened in a corporate worship service. Next week, we're going to look at what. how do you grow in your private practices. So we're going to talk about Quiet time, scripture memory, studying your Bible, personal prayer, all those different things that, like, like the quiet time, for lack of a better term. Because God uses private means to grow you as well. Father, help us to understand these truths tonight. We know that um, the Christian life is, is difficult. We, we struggle with sin. We look at our, our progress and wonder if we're making any, any dent. And Lord, help us to remember that you've given us everything we need You've given us the power, you work in us, you transform us, and so we're not responsible for any of that transformation, you do that. But Lord, we are to place ourselves in positions where we can grow, so Lord, help us to see the importance of sitting under sound teaching, the importance of being part of worship, the importance of being, um, the the beauty of what happens when we take the Lord's Supper, the, the importance of having other believers in our lives to hold us accountable and to walk alongside us. Lord, help us to use those means of grace so that we can grow to be more like Christ and give us the strength to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.